It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Matt Beat. And I'm Helen Hong. And today we are taking a stab at samurai. We are cutting into samurai. Okay. We are That's slight- enough. Okay. The main takeaways of Confucianism is be nice to your your superior, be nice to your family, be nice to your friends. And be nice means uh, don't try to kill them. If someone were to raid your house and try to kick you out, today we have the police we can call to help us. However, throughout much of history, ways to protect our property were much more informal. Take medieval Japan where a decentralized state and collapse of armies made it so that invaders could easily pillage. Peasants became vulnerable and decided they needed to protect themselves. Many would begin carrying weapons and undergoing strict, intense training, and over time developed a reputation as brave warriors to a point where nobles began hiring them to protect their property. In this episode, we are learning about a job of high prestige, a job that even today remains one of the most famous and romanticized jobs in history. Let's learn about the samurai. I'm excited to talk about samurai because, like you were saying, it is romanticized and you see movies and Tom Cruise played one. Like, (laughs) yeah, let's get into it. I, I had a feeling he might come up. That movie's based off of a French guy who was, I don't know if he officially ever was one, but yeah, like he loved the culture so much that he he didn't want to leave. Tom yeah. Cruise, were you portraying an Asian fetishist? <laughs> that that movie is so problematic from an Asian perspective in so many ways. Oh, yeah. Tom Cruise was not the last samurai. But anyway, let's let's not talk about that horrible movie. Let's not movie. jump the gun. Let's not jump the gun. <laughs> uh, we're talking about the real samurai here, also called Bushi. And they were the warriors of 
medieval and pre-modern Japan. I think a lot of our listeners already have this vision of the samurai, but when you think of samurai, what do you think of, Helen? They wore that really cool, stylized Japanese armor with the with the helmet that sort of like has a little flip at the bottom. And they were expert swordsmen. My impression is the sword was the major weapon or the maybe the only weapon of a samurai. They were on horseback. You know what's sad, Matt, is I really am thinking a lot about the Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> <laughs> no. Like I keep I keep imagining like what envisioning what I know about samurai and I'm like, oh no. Like take my Asian card, somebody. Everything I know about the samurai comes from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. So <gasps> that isn't much That is much a good better. one. So <laughs> real samurai were neither Tom Cruise nor Turtles. And they were not ninjas, I should say. Ninjas were considered beneath them. Like how dare they like <laughs> Samurai had a strict code, you know? Like- yeah, yeah, yeah. That That's my impression definitely is like very disciplined. They would train for years before mm. they were even allowed to call themselves samurai. People looked up to them. That's kind of my impression of a samurai. Yes. There's the ethic code of Bushido, which translates to the way of the warrior. And it's heavily influenced by uh, Confucianism. But essentially, the biggest standout to me with uh, are like just ethical behavior in general. Like uh, you're not going to drink alcohol. You're not going to go to the brothel. You're mm. going to have the highest standards of living possible. And it's kind of similar, I guess, to to monks in, in that regard. I was just thinking that as soon as you said don't drink alcohol and don't go to the brothel, I'm like, oh, they're like fighting monks. Like if you're not drinking and boozing and, and hooking up, then you're kind of like a religious man in a way. We're going to find out here that a lot of samurai were actually quite opposite of what we just described. (laughs) Oh no, we're going to burst the samurai bubble? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, who do we got that's going to burst our bubble? Well, we talked to Kyoto Ko. He's a podcaster, but we prefer to call him a communicator of Japanese culture. He's going to tell us how... The samurai began. 900s, 1000s, around that time, the kin of the emperor were the ruling class of Japan. And because they had ousted like an opposing race out of their territory, they felt that they didn't need the army anymore. It was becoming costly, of course. And also there was a belief called kotodama, which uh, refers to the belief that whatever you say becomes the truth. So royalty thought if we keep the army and we have to talk about the army, army is associated with war. So maybe China or Korea might invade us. That's part of the reason they disbanded the whole army. And that caused problems for peasants who live in the countryside. They had no one to protect them from bandits who would rob and destroy their farmlands that they worked hard for. There were also corrupt governors sent from uh, Kyoto. So they were sandwiched between corrupt rulers and dangerous mobs. So they had to protect themselves and their farmland. And that's the beginning of the samurais. So samurais were peasants who really honed their combat skills uh, in order to protect their fellow peasants. What? Yeah, I never knew that. That is so fascinating. So it was like Joe Schmo farmer dude (laughs) is like... 
well, I'm not going to let anybody, like imagine this in a Japanese accent. Well, I'm not going to let anybody come in here and take my hard-earned farm stuff. <laughs> so eloquent, Helen. You're just so elo- eloquent. I know. I can, I'm really good at words. <laughs> Wait, so... So because the army had been disbanded and the farmers were like, oh, hell no, I'm going to learn how to be a badass and protect my farm. It's up to us. We're on our own. The heck with it. We're going to learn it ourselves. We're going to be our own police. And I'm going to learn how to fight with a sword and I'm going to become a major badass. Come at me. When we think of samurai, we're usually thinking of like... I think later period when it was more formal and part of the hierarchy, whereas the the earliest samurai were just your everyday folks. And then it was, of course, passed down. It was hereditary. So from father to son for generations. Now we're going to jump ahead a few hundred years. Kyoto is going to talk about a new era. Japan was like, comparison to the U.S., it was like each state was governed by a warlord and each state was fighting against each other. That was the state of Japan in the 1500s because samurai lords were like local governors. But then most states were like, our job is to protect our people. We're not going to invade. We're we're trying to be nice people to their neighbors. There were a few samurai lords who had a vision of uniting Japan. One was Tokugawa Ieyasu. He made all other samurai lords throughout Japan surrender under him. Peace was attained. There were no more like samurai lords fighting against other states anymore. And that's how Japan became one. This was around the early 1600s. Oh, that's so interesting. So feudal Japan was similar to our history in the United States. Like before the Declaration of Independence, we had separate states. Yeah, I think that's a that's a solid comparison. I think it might be a little bit better to compare it to medieval Europe. Like he's talking about the 1500s and 1600s. By that time, there was a very strong caste system in Japan. You won't believe this actually, but at the bottom you have like the merchants, which were a little bit higher, I'd say in the the hierarchy over in Europe. Right. But above the merchants, you had the artisans and peasants. But then above them, you had the samurai. They worked directly for the daimyo. The daimyo were the the lords who they owned all the land. It's sort of similar to knights in Europe, right? Because around the same time, there were lords of the land and Mm -hmm. peasants that worked the land for the lords. And then knights would protect the lands, right? Yeah, that's another good comparison. You with your comparisons, I I, swear. You know what? Call me comparison queen. (laughs) (laughs) The, The most powerful daimyo were the shoguns, And they essentially ran all of Japan collectively. There was the emperor who was supposed to be above everyone, but the emperor during this time did not have very much power. The real power was the the shogun and the Mm. shogunate. Yeah, so by the end of the, the feudal era, I guess you can call it, there were about 260 daimyo, and they controlled all of the land. And... Who was their military force, essentially? The samurai. (laughs) 
Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. How does the daimyo relate to the shogun? Like the shogun are the most powerful daimyo that actually ah, um, rule. I see. So, so the daimyo, the daimyo are the people who own the land. They're like the feudal landowners. Yes. And then the shogun are the most powerful daimyo. Yeah. Like the like the like the pope is the most powerful of all cardinals. The way the shogun is the most powerful of all daimyo. Yes. Crystal clear. Thank you, Matt. Okay, so after Tokugawa Ieyasu 
I'm really worried about pronouncing his name, I, even though I said it in one of my videos several times. Matt, what are you saying? You didn't take a Japanese pronunciation class before we started our <laughs> recording today? Oh, my God. <laughs> I was too busy in my French pronunciation class. So after Tokugawa Ieyasu took over, there were a lot of changes. Towards the beginning of Tokugawa rule, they did have to rely on power to make sure that there were no revolts. They were very harsh to samurai lords who were not related to the Tokugawa family. So whenever a samurai lord failed something in his job, uh, they would take that as an excuse to fire the whole family off of the, the ruling class. But that also meant that they were producing many unemployed samurais. And samurais are basically really good at killing people and nothing else. So, you know, these kind of un unemployed people roaming around Japan, that's, that's really uh, dangerous. Uh, they switched their policy to attain peace through education of the whole country. They brought in Confucianism. The main takeaways of Confucianism is be nice to your, your superior, be nice to your family, be nice to your friends. And be nice means uh, don't try to kill them. That was like the official um, <laughs> philosophy that samurais needed to learn if they wanted to do a good job. So everyone studied very hard. It worked. It worked. <laughs> People started to calm down. They didn't think that killing was the, the go-to solution for anything. And it, it still affects us as Japanese now. We, we try to avoid confrontation. And it's clearly an effect from this education that the, the Kua family uh, set up like 300 years ago. Okay, everything about that quote is hilarious. <laughs> the fact that he's like, yeah, you know, be nice meant don't, don't kill people. Yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And just the fact, like, I love the concept of an unemployed samurai. <laughs> like, hey, we'll murder for a sandwich. Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> did, did that make sense to you, like how samurai could lose their job? Yeah, as you know, Matt, I always am keen to do a Game of Thrones reference, which you never get because <laughs> you've never seen Game of Thrones, which really uh. is it's a it, it's a character flaw on your part. I'm not I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and, you know, in Game of Thrones, the whole concept is there were seven kingdoms mm -hmm. and they were brought together. That's what Tokugawa Ieyasu was. He was like the first ruler of the seven kingdoms of Japan, basically. The the shogunate system was definitely, uh, you, you had less opportunities for samurai because there was more unity, essentially, more stability. It's like, oh, we're getting along. Well, shoot. The Dayamo is like, well, I guess we don't need as many warriors anymore. So they begin to lay off the samurai. That's <laughs> like, so funny. That's, it's, I mean, it's it's not funny, but it's funny in that it like to think about like, oh, sorry, samurai, you're laid off. Oh, man. What am I going to do now? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't know, man. Maybe you could uh, take an IT class or something. <laughs> a lot of them that ended up in the cities were actually notorious for uh, causing trouble. Like similar to gang members today, I would say. This is fascinating because it really does point to human nature and how you need an occupation. You need to be busy. You need to, to have a purpose and a job. Otherwise, you're causing trouble. And did I mention they have a license to kill? What? Yeah, they could essentially, if somebody was rude to them, now, as long as they had a witness that could verify the rudeness, they had, a, they had the authority to kill on the spot whoever was being rude to them. What? 
It so if I so if I'm a drunk peasant and then the samurai's down the street and I'm like, hey, you look like a dork in that helmet. The samurai had the right to just kill me right then and there. Yeah, even through the Tokugawa era, they had this authority to kill on the spot. I love the idea that you needed a witness to the rudeness. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get a witness? The the like, what did you just say? Hey, what did, did he just that? say? <laughs> you heard that, right? I can kill him, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so we see a transformation during the Tokugawa period, approximately between 1603 all the way up to 1868. You do see a gradual change with the role of the samurai Many of them actually became bureaucrats. While some were successful with business, others were not. And so you essentially had these proud warriors that now had kind of menial jobs. After peace was attained after the 1600s, they're officers of municipalities. So what they do is like office work, basically. So they would carry around katana swords for nothing to, to sit down and do office work. So they would like set taxes, print bonds. They were organized firefighters and dog catching. Everything you know, uh, the government does for us. So you could kind of imagine how samurais would feel. Their ancestors would fight courageously in battles, and they become legends. Now they find themselves uh, chasing dogs. So <laughs> peasants would kind of laugh behind their backs. They would laugh, and samurais, of course, they were not happy about how they were treated as uh, officers. So the samurais were questioning their identity a little bit, and peasants greatly questioned their importance. And of course, that that led to distrust from people gradually through a course of two hundred years. Wow! I mean, talk about a career crisis. You're like, man, I got this sword, and I'm here pushing papers. You know, working at the DMV with your sword on your back. That might start to make people still nervous, you know? I know. Like, I just came here to register my vehicle. Why are you swinging that giant sword? <laughs> Joking aside, this actually reminds me of what happens to a lot of veterans, like army veterans who, you know, to, in today's day and age, they go to Afghanistan, they go to Iraq, and then you come here and you're supposed to just like fit right back into society and like, work at Walmart or, you know, work in a retail job. And you're like, I was literally dodging bullets like a year ago. Well, I will say that it was more gradual, though. Like we're talking over a couple hundred years. It's more comparable to maybe a grandson thinking about his grandpa who fought bravely in World War Two. And it's like, I want to be like grandpa. And like the good old days where I was could be out there and uh, a war hero, you know. So another thing about Japan during this time was that it was very isolated. And so Kyoto is going to explain why it was so isolated during this time. Towards the middle of the 1600s, like any Western country was allowed to send in missionaries in return for trading with Japan. But some local Christian groups started acting up. The Tokugawa family wanted to prevent any form of risk. So... The Japanese Christians were prosecuted and the Christian missionaries, they were sent back to their countries and only the Dutch were, were able to trade with Japan uh, because they came to Japan solely for the purpose of trade. And uh, that state of Sakoku, it's called Sakoku, uh, that state of uh, closing for trade continued for like 20, 20 years. Because of Sakoku of Japan, they were able to hone their culture 
as a very, very unique one because they had really no influence from other countries. But at the same time, that caused like blindness among the ruling class. So they, they had no idea what was going on outside Japan and uh, technological advances were, uh, were neglected. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up <laughs> you couldn't believe it from iheart podcasts it's like the police knew who he was before they got here a story about money power and corruption the medical school dean at usc was leading a secret double life he's breathing right now yes he's absolutely breathing i'm a doctor actually there's no way that that guy's a doctor i'm paul pringle and i'm an investigative reporter for the la times This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I can't believe that the culture kind of stayed the same for 200 years. You know, the 1600s Japan was kind of similar to 1800s Japan. That's just mind-boggling to me. 
just to kind of back up a little bit here, you have 200 years or so of isolation. You also have 200 years or so of peace and stability. And meanwhile, the samurai are still part of this culture. And so when things change after those 200 years, it was kind of like a a huge wake-up call when they had to confront the rest of the world. In the 1800s, a set of American ships came into Japan, which was close to trade for a long time. And uh, Japan got a wake-up call. The last time Japan checked with uh, Western countries, their technologies were not that different. But after 200 years, the, the Industrial Revolution had occurred and steamboats were made, uh, they're massive ships, and they were terrified. It's like Earth becoming invaded by aliens. The Shogun decided to surrender to America. And then some samurai clans in Western Japan plot like coup d'etats. The Shogun sent samurais to Kyoto to protect the emperor but they lost. <laughs> so now everyone was thinking, if you can't protect us from other countries and you can't protect the emperor, what really can you do? So Shogun was forced to forfeit his title as the ruler of Japan. And the emperor will be the ruler of Japan once again. Like knowing what I know about Korean history, it really resonates with me. Like, you know, it's these tiny little Asian countries and they've had the same way of living for so long and closed themselves to technology. So they're still living the way they did in the 1600s. And then these American ships come and they're steamships. They have cannons on them. They have gunpowder and guns. And the Japanese are like, what the hell? Like they just knew that they were no match. Actually, it was quickly the beginning of the end for the samurai after this, their social status went way down. In the 1870s, the samurai makes up about 5% of the Japanese population. So we're, we're still talking about almost 2 million members here. And they are under direct national jurisdiction. Before we even get into that, I just so I'm clear, the Americans arriving in the 1800s, that was the catalyst for this new government to come into power? Yeah, that was that was definitely the catalyst. It was a, you know, it was a few years. There is a civil war between those who want to westernize and bring the emperor back into power and kind of the more uh, traditional the shogunate. Yeah, who are like, "No, this is the way we've done it and and this is the way we should keep doing it and be old school and have our samurai." Yeah, samurai actually find themselves on both sides of the the battle, but ultimately those who favor westernizing win. And so we we call this the Meiji Restoration, so the return of the emperor Meiji. Uh, the shogunate is gone, and now we have a, a period of rapid industrialization and westernization and essentially embracing the rest of the world and quickly modernizing. And meanwhile, what are we going to do with these samurai? The new government had a lot of knowledge uh, of the world outside Japan. They thought they had to modernize as quickly as possible so that they will be treated as an equal to the Western superpowers. The job of the samurai was obsolete and the way of thinking of samurai was obsolete. The new government told them, give up your rule, but in return, we'll, we'll pay for your, your living costs. So they were taking away their katana swords, they were taking away their class, they were taking away their provinces. A few years later, the government realized this is not sustainable. So they said, I'm sorry, in the second thought, uh, we can't afford to do it. So we'll give you like a retirement pay. <laughs> this should last you for like five years. So good luck. And then so they went off. Some were successful, but most weren't. They realized how hard 
peasant life was, how hard craftsman life was. <laughs> I love the idea of a samurai being given severance pay. <laughs> Here's your pink slip. We won't be needing your murderous swordsmanship anymore. Good luck in your new career. Don't call us because we don't have a uh, re-education program. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. So things, as you can imagine, are not going well for these samurai. <laughs> so there is one final revolt. And essentially, this is the, what we're going to hear is the end of the samurai. Many samurais moved to the West where there was like a safe house for samurais who couldn't adapt to the new age. For the lack of a better analogy, it's like they were forming a union. So the samurai union, they were plotting a coup d'etat. And one day, these young samurais revolt against the, the, the central government. Uh, there was a lot of casualties on both sides. But the new central government uh, bought the latest firearms from the West. They invested a sick amount of money. And they took this as an opportunity to demolish the, the, the samurais that were remaining. And that was the, the, the real end of the samurai class. Mm. This is so many implications in our current life about people who can't adapt to a new world, right? Mm, yeah. Well, not only that, but the samurai for hundreds of years, they had this, this individual authority that they had, the samurai. And now they're like, what? We have to obey this chain of command? They no longer ruled their own destiny, essentially were just... Now, cogs in the machine, like all of us listening. Um. <laughs> like Game of Thrones, which you would know the reference if you had ever seen Game of Thrones, Matt, which <laughs> I am holding it against you. From an outsider's perspective and having this very romanticized image of samurai, it is sad in that it's like the death of something very traditional and something very unique to this culture. But then knowing what we know now, that samurai were kind jerks yeah. they were allowed to just kill you on the spot for rudeness maybe the murder and mayhem and lawlessness yeah maybe maybe not maybe that's not so great thank you so much to kyota ko for being our expert today you can find him in all things about japanese culture by googling metro classic japanese and let's introduce Helen to a, a different film about samurai <laughs> other than The Last Samurai. So yes, what, are, what are your favorite samurai films other than The Last Samurai? Let us know. Tweet us at Pod. That's at Pod. Jobsolete is produced for iHeartRadio by Zealot Manufacturing Hand Forge Podcast for you. It's hosted by us, Helen Hong, that's me, and Matt B. That's me. The show was conceived and produced by Steve Zamarki, Anthony Savini, and Jason Elliott. Our editor is Tommy Nichol. Our researcher is Amelia Polka. Our production coordinator is Angie Jimenez. And theme music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. A special thanks to our iHeartRadio team, led by Nikki Etor, Katrina Norvell, Ali Cantor, Mangesh Hadi Kador, Will Pearson, Connell Byrne, and Bob Pittman. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. 
Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.